0: full of hope i've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase
1: the antelope aspen's gold on so takes the elk call me away i can't keep my mind on working on this fine september day i've got nimrod neurosis longbows on the brain i'm an outdoor downgrade
2: quest right back at you what's going on bob
1: How much buddy how you doing
2: Dude, I'm doing awesome. November's here. Yeah, it's almost a yeah. uh,
1: second go-around. Hopefully it goes better than the first for us. Yeah, man, it's going to be good.
2: Uh, and we will definitely fill you guys all in on our uh, deer hunting plans and and uh, how things go uh, on a future podcast. But we have kind of put together something special. I think it's special.
1: Um for sure. It's a, it's a podcast we recorded a long time ago, thanks to our good buddies over at Compton. They hooked us up with the legend, Mr. Dick Mock, and uh, if you guys follow along, you heard he passed away last week, which was super sad. We were hoping to get him on again, because the audio on this one was tough. Uh, it didn't turn out like we wanted it, and we wanted it to be perfect, but we're not able to do that now so we did the best we could with it. Uh I think you guys are still going to enjoy it. He just couldn't hear very well and it was hard to communicate um, back and forth and so there were some times where he cut out on us. And, but I think I got edit it edited up pretty pretty darn good. He told some awesome stories. What a neat guy. I mean, he's Yeah, t-
2: tell the, tell everybody who Dick Mock is if they don't know.
1: So Bob dick mock uh was actually at one point he was 18 percent owner in bear archery so yeah dick ran around with fred bear and bob munger and all those guys glenn st charles back in the glory days i mean he hunted africa when africa was good back in the 60s and alaska and british columbia and yeah he And you know, even though he was long on the tooth there, man, he still could tell a story and he's just, it it was, it was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. Really what happened folks
2: is, uh, Dick was being interviewed from his home and he was using a hard line and there was something going on with the phone and he has very poor hearing. And so we weren't able to really communicate when the recording was going south on us. And we just kind of let it ride because that was the situation we were in. And the stories you told were golden and some of the stuff comes in and out. And we were really hoping to fix those mistakes and, and redo that podcast. Like Bob said, it, we just, it just didn't work out. And it would be a shame not to share with you guys what we did capture because it's a great interview there's just some serious audio issues
0: yeah
1: but i added most amount so you guys love it um like i said heck of a hunter and he told stories you know i i I love the old guys i mean obviously you guys know we interview a lot of them but but uh just that's so cool to hear those old stories and to hear you know guys that at the end, still reliving it like it was yesterday. I mean, he remembered everybody's name and the year and the, I mean, it was, it was awesome. So
2: yeah, a true pioneer of our lifestyle.
1: Yeah. And, and, it, and another thing, you know, this podcast, you know, did for me while I was editing it, you know, it's been a couple of years, but just the work that those guys put in, um, you know, back in the sixties to, Get us bow seasons. I mean, they weren't around forever. You know, when we, we started, actually controlling game populations because we wipe them out because people ruin everything. You know, like there wasn't archery seasons back then. You know, I mean, yeah. Oregon we had one of the first ones, 35 first one on the west side. But there was there was very few areas if you wanted to go bow hunting you had to go hunt with the rifle hunters and, you know, that's what those early guys did. And they, they fought real hard, you know, Glenn St. Charles and, and all those guys. And he talks about it a little bit at the end of this one, but you know, they had to prove basically that it's an ethical weapon to hunt with and it's effective. And, and those guys put a lot of work in back in the day to do that. So
2: they sure did, man. I mean, I think a lot of the new guys don't realize uh, the weight on the back those guys carried for us.
1: Yeah and you know we take it for granted. I mean we you know even though we run a traditional archery podcast and we we talk a lot about technology and the, the negative sides of it um, you know we live in a good time. I mean we have archery seasons everywhere. It's awesome and I think that's something that people don't understand with what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep that going. Like in the future, you know, and some people don't agree with it, but we feel like, you know, our, some traditional areas here and there will really help, you know, we're at a time where technology is, is gone a long ways and nobody's really stopping to take a look and say, wow, you know, is this, is this good for us? Like where, where do we draw the line? And those, that line's different for everybody. You know, we totally understand that. Um, so yeah, this was a good one just to kind of go back and, Appreciate, you know, like, hey, we are, everybody talks about the good old days and there definitely was good old days and, you know, but we, we're living it, you know, so don't, don't get too negative. Get out there and enjoy it because these guys put in a lot of work for us and man, we appreciate it. Dick's just great guy and, you know, all those guys that, that he talks about in this podcast. I mean, those were, those were guys every fall when you go out and have your bow in hand, whatever bow you choose to use, you, be thankful to these guys because you know there's those times in history where guys like that stood up and and made a difference and if they didn't it could be way different (laughs) you know like if we didn't have roosevelt as a president back in the day and and he didn't set up the things he did i mean imagine how different it could be and the same with these guys if if yeah we could be stuff up it could be be, we could be we could be like
2: europe
0: yes yeah, you
2: know the the king the king owns all the deer and they hold on to your guns and only the rich get to pursue. I mean that's where we could be, but we get to go bow hunting on public land, over the counter in most states or yeah. pretty much all states.
1: Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So,
2: it is so. in, that,
1: in the spirit of uh, bear archery. We uh, had some. Quivers donated to us from uh, Selway Archery, some of those sweet new bear quivers you guys have been seeing online, uh, retro, and thanks to our Patreon supporters for helping us out, donating to our cause here, pays the bills on the Skype and the computers and the recording equipment and all that stuff, so we appreciate that. And so we're going to give one of those away to one of our faithful Patreon members, I already drew the name, and it's uh, Mr. Ryan Starley.
2: So uh, very cool. Yeah, i ought to put uh, some good mojo on his bow this fall.
1: Yes, and you're going hunting with Matt here in a yep. couple of weeks. I sure Those am with his just awesome brother. Yeah, this... They just love hunting. They're super good dudes. I can't wait to meet Ryan. I got to spend a lot of time with Matt on a family camping trip this summer, and you're not going to find find better guys. And uh Ryan is a stud. I follow him on the social media. He ran a, one of those 100-mile races this summer in under 24 hours. I mean, tch, what an animal. Animal. It was like a, one of the circle track ones where you're just running a loop the whole time. Oh, my God, for 24 hours. Whew, crazy. So Brutal. Enjoy the quiver, Ryan. Thanks for your support, and uh, thank you yeah. guys out there that are – Yeah,
2: thanks. Good. Thanks, Bear Archery. Thanks, Selway Archery. Thank you, Compton Traditional. Uh, thank you all the Patreon supporters. We do appreciate you guys. Can you hear us, Dick? I hear you fine. Okay. Uh, why, why don't you just, uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, where you're from and how you got started in archery. Alright,
3: well, uh, I, I'm here in Bassett, Nebraska. I've lived here all my life. It's in north central Nebraska, up where there's some pretty good, uh, mule deer hunting in the early days, and now we have just about only whitetail. But I got started in archery uh, because I got tired of short seasons and shooting uh, a deer with a 300 Weatherby Magnum or hunting that way. I got uh, an ocean uh, long in July, I don't remember, I think it was about 1950 four or five or fifty-five or six that uh, it was time to uh, apply for my Nebraska Deer Permit. I was eligible to pro- apply again after a three-year wait-out. And, and When I sat down to fill out the application, there was a thing on there for a firearm permit or a choice of an archery permit. And I thought, well, gee, I maybe ought to try this archery business thing a little bit. At that point, I didn't even own a knock, and that was along in July. And so I just uh, offhand checked the archery thing and kind of forgot about it. Along about two months later, August sometime, here comes a permit from the Nebraska Department of Fish and Game for an archery permit to start hunting in September well, i got to get some equipment and get going, so I did a little searching around, decided maybe uh, this Bear guy had pretty good equipment, or Ben Pearson, I'd go with Bear, and I got a contact with a sporting goods dealer down in Fremont, Nebraska, that had Bear bows, and he sent me a 41-pound Bear 64-inch Kodiak bow to start with, and 40 pounds being illegal hunting weight, and a shooting glove, an arm guard, a back quiver, and I told him uh, Dick Baker was a sporting goods guy at Fremont. I said, I want a dozen arrows to practice with and a dozen to hunt with, and I know enough about uh, ballistics and rifles and so forth to know you want to practice with the same thing you hunt with. So he sent me a dozen Bill Sweetland cedar forgewood arrows, bought the best you could get, with 125 grain field points and a dozen similar forgewood arrows with bare razor heads. And I started practicing for a couple weeks, set up some bales of hay in the backyard and stood in the middle of the street and fired across the fence and in distances up to about 45 yards down to 15 yards. I didn't figure I'd probably get as close as 15 yards, but I shot a few from there, most of them from the middle of the street. had a paper target on the bales with a picture of a deer on it, and uh, I kept shooting always to the left and sometimes mostly hitting that deer target if I hit it at all in the head or the or the nose or someplace, and about weekend of the a couple weeks into the season, I got Dick Turpin uh, who had uh, also gotten a bow permit and starting in archery, and uh, he uh, he went with me, and, and we had been given a clue of a of a place south of Bassett uh, alongside. Uh, a plum thicket and a dryland uh, cornfield where a guy had seen some mule deer hanging out. We went out uh, on a hay buying mission with me, or hay checking mission with me, and then on the way back to town, we swung over by that particular cornfield. And sure enough, there was three mule deer bucks hanging by that cornfield and in that plum thicket. Drove my Chevy up alongside and got my bow out of the back seat and Stepped a few yards to the right or left, and the mule deer buck was standing kind of in the plum thicket. And I found an opening, fired an arrow, and darn if I didn't hit him. And uh, Turpin hollered, you hit him. I said, oh, damn, Turpin, I hit him in the nose. No, he said, you got him in the jugular. The blood just flew. <laughs> so the very first arrow, I shot at the deer, I killed the deer, and it didn't last as long as my rifle seasons. But that's the way I got started. Wow. What what, was, what year was, was that, Dick? Really, I think it was 1956. Okay. I'd have to look at the, the little tag on my mule deer antlers that are to hanging over the fireplace with that first arrow stuck in him, It's got a year on it when it checked it in at Nebraska Game and Parks. And, but I'm in my mind that it was 1956. My memory is not always really, really sharp these days trying to remember dates and things, you know. But anyway, I was hooked then, Seeing then, so eventually it led along till we, uh, <coughs> some of the people that were Near Long Pine, Nebraska, that kind of had encouraged me, and we're also involved in hunting a little with the bow. Uh, four of us formed an archery club, and we then set up a, a range with some bales and some animal targets. And I think we had 14 targets set up up by Long Pine, and then that was our first range. Eventually, we formed the Long Pine Archery Club, and grew to to be one of the biggest clubs in the state because there was a irrigation project with the Bureau of Reclamation. Had a whole lot of uh, engineers and people up up living around Long Pine Ainsworth that were. Laying out a, a dam on the Snake River south of Valentine and irrigation canals throughout the area. And those people got a lot of those guys got involved in with our archery club, and eventually we built uh, three ranges on some property I had about three miles from Bassett. We had a 28 target field range, a 28 target uh, hunter. And we had a double American and some of the target archery courses laid out on. Oh, I had a, about 40 acres of land, was kind of with some groves of trees around in it, and that's where we had our first archery ranges. From then on, it grew, uh, we all became uh, well involved with National Field Archery, and we had a good uh, state organization we joined our club too which was called the nebraska prairie bowman and i got involved in state archery and i got to be the hunting vice president of that and just things going on along with it equipment and things we need arrows and accessories so i wrote to bear archery company about becoming a dealer and couple other companies uh, also. I had, through my hardware store, access to some stuff through the hardware jobbers, you know, and wholesalers. But uh, Bear sent Gene Jones over, and he set me up as as our farmer's lumber supply hardware store as a Bear dealer. Dick, can you hear me? I don't know what's wrong with my phone here. I'm on the landline.
1: Yeah, it's oh, weird please. you just you just cut out, but that's all right. We'll just pick it up. You were talking about when you became a a bear archery dealer when you cut out. So just pick it up from there when you started being a bear archery dealer.
3: Well, I Gene Jones came and set us up as a bear dealer. And uh our, we became probably the largest archery dealer in the state because we got I got involved with the Nebraska State Organization and and on the board as a hunting vice president of the board. And then we would go to the field shoots at every, every other club. And, uh, and, uh, seemed like, uh, uh, archers were always looking for s- some chance to trade or try out a new bow. And I, I built a pretty big business using bear closeouts. Uh, we could really promote with some of those and guys were buying second and Third bows with when when they had a target bow, they'd get a hunting bow. and of those closeouts, or it built from there anyway, out of the out of the uh, state organization. We uh, all had this was all through National Field Archery Association that our ranges and clubs were all sanctioned. And uh, along 1962, the NFAA decided would have a a five-state tournament. Uh, they called the Five-State Midwestern Tournament, and they were looking for different archery clubs or state organizations to host it. Our Long Pine Archery Club uh, decided we'd make a bid for it, and we did, and it showed them what uh, kind of a nice terrain and country we had for it. We didn't have a lot of hotel-motel arranged, but we had some, but in the three towns we served, but we, we won the bid, and we hosted the first five-state Midwestern NFAA tournament at Long Pine, and I was deemed the tournament chairman, so I've still got all of the records of that. We had these Bureau of Reclamation uh, engineers that were doing the irrigation project for the Snake River and, uh, and the O'Neill Project, uh, Irrigating a lot of land around um, where, they were, where they were laying out canals and all this stuff was long. So, we had a lot of these Bureau of Reclamation engineers that had gotten involved in our archery club and their bow hunting. And they did some surveying and laid out the courses up at Long Pine, by the old Long Pine Hidden Paradise, where resort there and we had three field courses laid out there that we built that summer. Then later that fall that became our our field we hosted the state championships and we did that for two years in a row but I still got those I still got those scores and everything from the first NFAA five state midwestern in, in a file here someplace, I don't know. <laughs> what I why I keep them or what I why I kept them for, except they're just kind of history.
0: Very cool. That's
3: way some of it got started. Then, along about 1961, uh, Gene Jones and I got together and decided we wanted to make a hunt up to the Little Delta, and we were going to. We were particularly interested in hunting sheep, so. I had a, I had involved now with my airplane and I flew Gene and well I picked Gene up at O'Hare Airport in Chicago on my way to Grayling, Michigan, and we went up and met with Fred Bear and uh, got some information about the Little Delta. Those are all different individual chapters, you might say, every one of those trips when I first met Fred, but. Uh, <laughs> We, we got a tour of the plant, and in the middle of the summer, why, Gene canceled out the trip because uh, his wife got in a family way and put a stamp of no, no on his head. So it came along middle of July again, and I was working at the lumberyard and working on a project and, and my hardware business, whatever got a phone call from Fred Bear. It really surprised me. He said, well, yeah, I said, uh, understand you and Gene Jones aren't going to Little Delta. He said, where are you going to hunt this fall? And I said, well, I applied for sheep permit in Wyoming, which I didn't draw, but, but so I haven't got any place to go. He said, would you be interested in a grizzly bear moose hunt in British Columbia in September? I said, yeah, I'll go he said gee that's the quickest answer i ever got i said that's because i wasn't married and i didn't have to ask a wife are you still there
0: yeah, yeah oh yeah yeah
3: okay so in 1961 i went on my first hunting trip with fred bear it was charlie crow and and uh bob munger It's when i met bob munger by the way on that trip we had dick bolding along for a photographer and uh, was with Bill Love and Jack Lee up in Crispiasa, British Columbia. Fred had been there the year before. Charlie and Fred had both been the year before. had also had KK Knickerbocker with them. But uh, Nick had uh, been with them uh, on a earlier hunt that before they went to, in '61 to British Columbia, they were hunting the Salmon River area of. Of Idaho and Glenn St. Charles was with them on that one. In fact, that was the hunt where Glenn took that picture of Fred, where he's standing there looking out over the Salmon River. That's become a very, quite famous picture, you know, of, um, among archery and bow hunting circles. Anyway, Nick Nick hunted with him there for the that part of that hunt, but he he was unable to. It was business commitments, so I kind of took his place on the reservation uh, Fred had made for that September grizzly moose hunt. And that's when I, when I met Bob Munger, and we, and we uh, went to uh, the Kispios and, uh, and then up to Stevens Lake, and we hunted there, and then floated uh, Munger and I floated uh, the Kispios River down below the rapids. And uh, above and below the rapids, I should say. And uh, uh, we had some some uh, run-ins with some different grizzlies that are other stories of another time. But uh, then we, when we when we got uh, uh, at Stevens Lake, Dick Bolding and I and, and a fellow that Lee had named Rob Roy had done some exploring around Stevens Lake and I had gotten a topple map of some of the area before we went up so I found an inlet into Stevens Lake from, which came from Swan Lake and that, that became called the Grizzly Creek and that's where Fred uh, later did uh, his filming with ABC and uh, Grizzly Bear Hunt and uh, also the story in life magazine was made there uh, following those days but we sort of pioneered that area for Grizzlies in 1961 that's kind of where it all started while we were on that trip I Munger and I both uh, had mentioned to uh, Fred wondering, uh, you know I was I was quite interested in in archery for a so I was interested in getting out of the lumber business, and I mentioned to Fred, you know, what what future might be there in in bow hunting and or in manufacturing and archery, or particularly, would there be any stock for sale in bear? He said, well, he had some dissatisfied stockholders that hadn't been, that we hadn't been bear hadn't been performing very well that year. In fact, he said last year we did $2.5 million worth of business, and we only lost $285,000. He said, the only reason we didn't lose more money is because we didn't do more business. Well, you know, in 1961, that was a pretty small fortune, 285000 or that. But I said, I think that was just because they recalled so many bows, they had some glass problems, and we were getting to sell those bows back Bear was recouping costs by selling them as closeouts, and just there was just so much future. So anyway, I was able to buy 100 shares of stock from one of his disgruntled early stockholders. I'm not going to mention the name, and uh, checked a couple others. And then Charlie Piper was his other major partner, along with Knickerbocker, but Charlie wasn't actually interested in it anymore. In fact, he and Frederick had a falling apart, because I guess I'm not going to say why, but there there were some personal problems involved, and uh, they were still friends. But uh, eventually I was able, after a couple of years, uh, to make a deal with my brother to sell my half of the partnership in the Lumberyard, and, and I bought Charlie Piper out and I became about an 18% stockholder in the Bear Archery Company at that point. In uh, 1964, I did make my flight up to the Little Delta and spent a couple of weeks there. And At uh, the uh, end of that time, I got back down to Bassett. I got a call from Bob Kelly at at uh, Bear Archery that he needed uh, me to make a trip out to California because the California seasons were getting started and Doug Walker was in the hospital. Doug was our rep out there at that time. So I, the 3rd of July, I got my airplane and I made it as far as Salt Lake City that day with terrible headwinds and turbulence. Waited overnight, flew on to Fresno, California the next day and Betty Walker met me at the airport just before they closed the airport for the Blue Angels to have a show. Went over to the hospital and Doug told me where he needed me to go King Sporting Goods in San Francisco and go over to Redwood City where they got a, a, a big uh, West Coast Engineering Company had indoor archery lanes, automated lanes, and they had a John Gary deal going on, and they needed me to call there, and then go down to Hollywood and make some calls, and then especially need to go over to Phoenix, Arizona, and see Al Henderson at Henderson Archery. So I flew up to San Francisco and spent a couple of de- wonderful days with Bill Wright. What a time! Got acquainted with that guy, you know. And we later partnered together in Africa and shared a professional hunter in 1965, another different type of story, but anyway, that was, that was where some of it got started and how I met Al Henderson and, uh, and uh, went on uh, <clears throat> that summer then to, to take Fred over to Conshohocken, in Pennsylvania Fred and Don Cook and I went over to look at a indoor archery comp, uh, uh, idea that uh, I think the guy's name was Charlie Sansar. I can't remember what the other partner's name was, but they had an indoor archery uh, de- designed on the order of uh, of what bowling would be interested in, or the In other words, uh, in 1964, there was a lot of bowling alleys that were in trouble, and Brunswick was looking for something to take the place of, uh, alongside of bowling, and indoor archery became a a focus for them. And Charlie Sanzar's equipment had an electronic bullseye target at 20 yards or 60 feet, in same as a bowling alley. And it had a a series of grids and wires. When you'd shoot an arrow through it, it would show on an electronic scoring thing, just like bowling showed where your strikes were and all, you know, showed where your hits were to to. And then it had some buffers in the back where the arrows would fall to the ground and on a conveyor and come in a conveyor tube right back to the shooting line and flip them right up beside the shooter. Which was pretty good for fiberglass arrows, but not so great for aluminum arrows. And uh, anyway, <clears throat> I was I was uh, sort of uh, volunteered to go over to Fort Dodge, Iowa, where they were going to install this unit and four four bowling lanes coming out and four archery lanes put in alongside of them. And there was a test program with Brunswick, so I. Got to work on the drawing board, designed a pro shop for it, and uh, went over to to start the thing. And, and uh, I'd had some experience with uh, with Doug Morgan and up in Madison, Wisconsin, with unit uh, uh, up there training for indoor archery and teaching and so forth. And I, I was over there to manage and set that up. And uh, that, that one uh, didn't materialize into anything much other than the fact that it wasn't the right one to work with bowling because you had to start beginner shooting from 60 feet or 20 yards from the target and in indoor archery to make them have success. You needed return targets or walk-ups where you could shoot 15 Uh, 15 feet or 5 yards or 20 yards or whatever. You wanted them to have big targets and start, you know, and make success. That's that's another line of archery that doesn't have any history recorded, but there's a lot of history in the old American Indoor Archery Association that uh, went back to the 1960s when those big West Coast engineering lanes and things were there. Practice. I, I, there was one in the Alameda Shopping Center in Denver that had 24 lanes. They also had indoor trap shooting with 22 rifles with birdshot in them and small targets.
0: Wow. And
3: uh, Dean Jones left Bear Archery Company and went over to Denver. He and Hal Carmichael managed that 24 lanes indoor. Western West Coast Engineering Indoor Lanes in the Alameda Shopping Center. That that was where uh, in and in, in fact uh, in Fred's first visit uh, to Bassett, Nebraska after our uh, I'd met him in our hunt in British Columbia and he came in after Christmas uh, and I and I I'd, pick some of them up or fly them someplace, I'd have the exact date and time down in my aircraft log but I can't see anymore I've lost my sight so I'm kind of in the dark to tell you exactly on some of that stuff, I have to get my wife and her eyes out, I don't think (laughs) she can read my writing in them anyway (laughs) but Fred Fred and Mrs. Bear were here after Christmas Uh, they'd been out to California I think maybe one of those like the Redwood City Lanes thing, and with, with Doug Walker, and then had taken the train, Union Pacific train, back to uh, I don't know it was Grand Island or North Platte, Nebraska, where I picked him up. And he, anyway, um, they uh, they uh, came and spent some days here with me in my apartment, and Fred. Got introduced to Boeing and the Nabarro River. It was very, very cold. Uh, and then we're here for New Year's. And then I took uh, Mrs. Bear for her first small plane ride. She didn't like flying very well. She was afraid of it. But I got her convinced that it was safe. And I put her in the back seat of my Comanche and flew them out to Denver. And we visited that, Fred visited that uh, indoor shopping. Uh, Center Alameda Lanes project there and then we took him down to uh, the, uh, where Mike Steger was in the Air Force Academy instructing Mike Steger was Mrs. Bear's foster uh, or nephew uh, foster son and uh, that was uh, that was uh, uh, first Plane ride. Mrs. Bear had in a small aircraft, and it was it was a nice, smooth ride, and I think she really enjoyed it. So that's uh, that's just more history. What happens, you know? And after that, uh, '64 summer, of 1964, Fred went to uh, Africa hunting with Arthur Godfrey and uh, some of his True Magazine, and Bob Helmy was his photographer, and he made the elephant hunt and, and killed his elephant and the greater Kudu and, and while he was there at Safarilandia in Mozambique Fred was so impressed with it he, he reserved the the hunting concession for the following year for the latter part of June and the early part uh, uh, well let's see the, the last middle of June early June to the middle of last of June now was for two weeks of ferrari for four hunters and four professional hunters, and uh, for two weeks with the option to stay in the third week. And he, he he, sprung it on us, and I said, well, what do you got in mind? Fred he said, well, I figured that Bob Munger, Knickerbocker, and uh, he and I would be the four hunters, and I said, well, I don't know, Fred, I'm not real interested in African hunting yet. I wanted to hunt North America. I was... At that point, involved very much with the Pope and Young Club, and and uh, had uh, taken on the records program and some other things. And he said, "Well, Dick, there's going to be hunting in North America for the next 50 years, but Africa won't last 10. If you want to see it, you ought to get it now." So I said, "Well, I don't know." He said, "Well, I'll give you." uh... give you a month or so to decide if you don't go. I said, Bill Wright's already ready that he wants to go. And if you have first choice, but if you don't take it, Bill Wright's going to go. And Munger was just like I was. He wasn't sure about it either. We we're kind of looking at the expense idea of it a little bit, too, because at that point in time, it was going to be around $3,000 and then upwards from there. Uh, <laughs> That came along in about the 1st of January where I was back in Grayling, Michigan working with Treat there in Fred's office. I had a table in Fred's office and I was working there on some stuff for a dealer's manual and some <clears throat> promotional ideas. And Decided we'd go. Well, Bill Wright decided he had wanted to go too. And I said, well, gee whiz, said it up. Munger said he'd like to get involved with sharing with Bill a little bit too for a newspaper uh, writer to go along. Jim Crow from the Detroit News uh, was lined up to go along with the hunt and uh, to send stories back to Detroit. So when Bill and I got over to Mozambique, we, Bill wanted to shoot an elephant with the bow. That was his, and I was going to run the cameras for Bill's hunt, and which he did. And one of the first hunt we were, with Walter Walter Johnson jr was our professional hunter his dad Wally was uh, was professional hunter for Fred with Halmy. and uh, Bob Munger had uh, uh, ended up with Rui quadros and Knickerbocker with George Dieick but the uh, the elephant hunt we when we were uh, on a, a herd of elephant and uh, and when Bill got close, we got uh, close in with a bull, the cow, and she had a baby calf. And we caught that calf, baby elephant, and, and uh, got it uh, back to camp with us and carefully um, looked after it. And the Toyota, I rode with it to keep it from getting bumped around too much, and we chopped the Nazi leaves for it, and it, it was eventually picked up in a big crate by Werner von Alvensleben, the camp director, and hauled over to main camp. And, and it got injured in, in a 50-kilometer trip over the rough trails and roads and banging around in the crate that Werner had in the back of a Toyota pickup with no padding. And it got bruised up. And it, and, in about a week after main camp, the baby elephant got sick and died, did the autopsy, and it had gotten a blood clot that had gotten to its heart or something. and They figured that it got bruised up too much on that trip, you know. It it was a big loss because the Detroit Zoo, the, Jim Crow had written all the stories and pictures back about our capture of it, said, I've got all those newspaper clippings and files, you know. But it it, uh, it was a big story that about the safari and the Detroit newspaper and the zoo in Detroit had made a deal to buy that elephant delivered F O B as far as I knew it was what they said F O B Detroit Zoo for thousand dollars. So it was a pretty big loss to Safari Landio when they lost that baby elephant. Waller was uh, Waller was a, a great uh, wild. Uh, professional hunter, Bill Wright, and I had a great time with him. He was gung-ho. He was driving alongside a herd of buffalo, at Cape Buffalo, and uh, and uh, reached out alongside and caught the tail of a buffalo calf and on, on to it. When we break to a stop, we all piled out and get on to it and subdue do it down and get it hog-tied up and thrown in the back of the, of the Toyota. And... Uh, Another time we caught a young wildebeest the same way, <laughs> and you uh, you don't get those kind of fun experiences in Africa anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. Well,
3: <laughs> so that's you, kind of some of the stories and how things happened and got going. <laughs>
0: how
2: how was the hunting in Africa on that trip?
3: Oh, it was fantastic. I, I you know we had so much game around. Uh, actually, uh you go out you, uh, I think the first thing um, bill shot was uh was waterbuck and uh, then the first thing I shot was an in inyala, and with with the bull well well the elephant hunt, um, bill <laughs> bill took time for elephant and we we went back again. Uh, jim crow wasn't with us and we'd gone over to main camp and met with the party and then we went back to, uh, we were at a place called Panzila lake in the elephant area fred was at camp ruark knickerbocker was at camp alice de lima and uh, then we'd get together at main camp every week or so and make some shifts around or whatever but uh, Bill Bill's second attempt for an elephant uh, wasn't successful, and and I think uh, I recall seeing the arrow shot that Bill Wally had whispered, shoot now. I was trying to see it through the eyes of the six. Bill had a gun stock mount 16 millimeter uh, magazine camera that we were using, and, and I had a 16 millimeter uh, Bell and Howe camera with a turret lens on it there was an old movie tone news type camera I'd traded for it. A dealer in South Dakota had it and I'd bought it from him anyway we had we had Bill's camera and uh, I think when Wally whispered shoot now I think the elephant turned its head and it, it all went through the ear I'm not sure anyway it, it wasn't as cool and uh, uh, they ended up with some shots at it, but didn't kill the elephant. It took off. And uh, we tracked for a day or so, looking to see if, it, you know, you can hit an elephant in the head with their skull. and just bounces kind of high off and and doesn't always uh, have any effect. But that, uh, way we we given up the trail, uh, rifle along for for possibility that i might want to hunt an elephant but uh, one of the one of the trackers was carrying it covering me as i was carrying the cameras, and bill had the bull walter asked me if i didn't want to shoot that elephant and i said no i didn't really care much about killing the elephant unless i saw a really maybe a real trophy tusker he said well how much bigger do you want one he said, in the days of our professional hunting, we would getting an animal like this who's got good, good ivory. So I took my 375, and I would fired it once in camp to kind of get an idea of where it was shooting. It was open sights, and I aimed in, I was about 50, 60, 40, 50 yards away, and the elephant was broadside, and they didn't know we were there. Hadn't winded us or anything, and then I I shot Aimed, right I, I killed it in one shot, it his trunk went up, and it went to ground, and Bill had it on film. Well, then when I shot, four more elephants stood up, and they were all bedded down there and hadn't seen them, and then when they stood up, they they took off running and from the shot, but they ran a ways, and they stopped, and they sort of stood all butt-to-butt, butt, you know, different directions because they didn't know the danger the, from from one shot, Bill decided then he'd like to finish it. There was a better elephant in that group than the one I'd killed. And Bill said, well, maybe just take my rifle and fill his permit, and they'd give up all hunting. So, okay, we, we shifted over, and I, I hand him the rifle, and he said, now, how do you work it? And I showed him how to. Well, those cartridges are there, and there's where the safe is. You know, just push the safe there, and then you're ready to go. And uh, he he handed me his camera, but it was out of film. So I used a little Instamatic camera to try to take some pictures of Bill's elephant hunt. And uh, when we went in, Wally told him to shoot You know, for the heart. We got up close to him, and Bill shot a shot for the heart. The elephant took off. Walter didn't want another chance on it, so he fired two, and the elephant fell dead. It ran back toward where they'd where they'd been originally, and it fell dead about sixteen feet from where my dead elephant was. Well, then I found out Bill handed me the gun back. That was the first time he'd ever fired a, a rifle. He he didn't. He had his inaugural hunt with a rifle killing an elephant.
0: <laughs> wow.
3: Interesting story about Bill was um, when we were sitting, I was sitting in Fred's office there in January when when Bill decided, you know, he was going to hunt elephant, and he sent an order to bear to Fred. they called him, said he needed three 60 inch Kodiak bows to be built. Said, make me a 60 inch Kodiak. 80 pounds and one 90 pounds and one 100 pounds. So I'll use them. I can use the 80 and the 90 to build up for the 100 to shoot and hunt an elephant. Well, Bill Fred called Bill Stewart, who was the boyer at the time I was sitting at my table there working. He called him in and he said, Bill, got an order here to make three 60 inch Kodiak bows for Bill Wright. He said make them seventy eighty and ninety and mark them eighty 90 and a <laughs> hundred uh,
0: that's
3: that's how my fifty my my 48 inch Kodiak bow got started too was when Bill Stewart was a bowyer and I wanted a shorter bow than a fifty two inch magnum. I called Bill Stewart I said I think you know, U.S. Yes, Archer, somebody has made a 50-inch bow, but I thought we ought to be able to make a 50, at least, maybe shorter, a 48. So Bill went to work, and he carried, he brought three 48-inch super mags in and laid them on my table. Two of them were black, the black ebonite uh, uh, handles, or like mica like type handles, that the original, for today. And uh, one of them had a bubinga handle. And I know they were 63, 67, 70 pounds, something. I don't exactly remember what the weights were. But uh, I shot one. I think a 67 pound, and Bob Munger got wanted to shoot one of them, so he shot the 63 pound one, or whatever it was that went a little lighter. And eventually, Bill Wright used the bobbinga handle one. Uh, to kill his buffalo. Um, so then Zoli Vider, when, when I left, I gave the bubinga handle one to Zoli Vider and the one that I'd been using I gave to Walter Johnson, my professional hunter. Uh, it got lost uh, in all the, if, you, if you've ever read the book on the last elephant hunter Wally Johnson, you'll hear the story of how uh, the Freelimo and the revolutions over there uh, destroyed everything they had, and uh, uh, Walter told me that he uh, didn't have the boar anymore because uh, it was at the farm in Rhodesia, and everything over there was destroyed and taken over by the rebels. And Walter, incidentally, is uh, is living in California. We've made contact. I was at Compton about Four years or so, three years ago, I don't remember, Somebody came to me and handed me a phone number and said a fellow named Walter Johnson wanted to get in touch with you if you were around. And and uh, I didn't think of. Uh, I said Walt Johnson, not Walter. And and it didn't ring for a little bit. And I said, Well, it'd be Walt, Wally Johnson's boy. Yeah, I guess that must be it. So. I called, and we we made contact, and I've never, we never gotten together, but we did phone calls a few times, and emails, and since I've lost my sight, and since last November, I haven't been in contact with him, but I need to, need to make, cut space again,
0: yeah, that's because, awesome. uh,
3: but I did have my movies, and some of what I had left of, see, I had, most of my film that I had was, uh, some of that was copies from Bill Wright, because what I had on film, I made copies for Bill, and what we had on his film, he made copies for me, but he had the originals. And my films weren't as sharp, uh, stand in the test of time over 60 years, but we did we did try to put some of them on some CDs, and I sent the CD uh, on, the, on the disc to... Uh, Walter, and uh, and he said he and his daughters enjoyed seeing it all again.
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
3: Some of the history. But it was great hunting. In, Af- in 1968, I went back to Africa, and I went alone. I, I, I tried to get Doug Van Hout lined up to go with me, but he already had a commitment to do filming in, in British Columbia or someplace, so. So I went alone, and I spent uh, oh six weeks or so over there uh, in November, from November 1968 on into December. I mean, six weeks before I came back to the state, I'd, I'd gotten disenchanted with continuing to try to sell bear archery in my uh, sales. Uh, um, being a rep for bear, after the sale to Victor Comptometer and what was going on with Victor and Bear Archery, then I couldn't go back to the dealers I had in Light Dome. And so I, I just quit selling and came back to Nebraska and started the farm going and some things that way, running some cattle. But uh, I had a great trip in '68 as well, and it was. And we went in, in June of '65 with Fred and uh, the group. Uh, it was winter time down there when I went uh, back in '68. It was the dry start, end of the dry season and the start of the rainy season. But uh, the the hunt with Fred was so memorable. The guys, the guys hunted uh, the the '65 the, the trip. Uh, it was. Uh, for two weeks and option to stay in three and Fred and I stayed four and I was there yet with Fred in camp when he killed his lion and,
0: and uh,
3: I hadn't yet to kill a buffalo but I had Rui Quadros then for a hunter that last fourth week and Walter had taken on uh, he had been booked to have a, a family of hunters from L.A. it was Don Malice and his family and uh so I was with I was with uh, Quadros and uh, uh, I went out with him and I, I I was when Fred got his lion and he had killed two buffalo already would had the, he'd had the two permits of that fill but he hadn't saved uh, anything but the capes for the head mounts and he said Dick if if would be nice if we had a lion life-size mount of a lion killing a buffalo for the NSGA show and for the Fred Bear Museum or the Bear Archery Museum. So if you kill a buffalo, why don't you bring the whole thing to camp and I'll trade you a cape for the skin? And we can, well, that sounds, you know, we, we just decided right then and there we would we would try to make that work. Well, I went out that morning with Rory and I killed this really nice buffalo. I was a solid boss all the way across, brought it to camp, and uh, uh, made the deal with Fred. And when it was supposed to get the cape off of his for the skin and cape, head had everything mine, and his head and horns were going to be mounted on that one with the lion. But when they shipped it to the taxidermist, and uh, Steve Horn in Mount Vernon, New York the, the safari directors didn't separate Fred's horns from his cape or mine from mine so the whole buffalo skin and, and horns of mine went to Steve Horn along with Fred's lion and it, it got mounted under Fred's lion instead of his horns on there although it didn't make much difference it was a good head so, uh, Fred then had uh, the buffalo that we'd been involved in helping him hunt uh, for the movie, uh, and he had it mounted in Seattle, Wayne Hathaway mounted and shipped it to me. I didn't have a place to hang it here, I had it out, and I loaned it to some dealers out in Denver area and whatever, seeing that one. Eventually, in '68, I killed another buffalo. It was a really nice one. Uh, Not for chase hunting necessarily. We needed a wildebeest for a lion bait, and I was primarily interested in hunting lions over there, and that's what I was for. And and, uh, we couldn't find any wildebeest or zebras or anything for lion bait. And there were three big buffalo bulls we saw, and really took off after him, like Indian-style, uh, alongside of him. I'm riding with my knee on the seat and my foot on the running board, and the rope was off the side to hold me in, a uh, topless Toyota, and fired a couple of arrows into the side of a big buffalo bull as he turned and ran, then back into the bush where the lines had been hanging. And uh, when we, we went back in, then... We got the dead buffalo, okay, and drug him out. We opened up the midsection and hooked on to the horns and the head and start dragging him behind the line of a, the car around the bush where the line's been hanging to leave a scent. And then pulled him over to a big bearbag beb bear tree, and there was a limb about ten feet above the ground there where I sat. After dark until the moon went down, and over the over the li- uh, buffalo carcass, but the lion never came. Lions never came to it. So my my I didn't have a cape for that set of horns. Eventually, I had it. the held over in, in Denver at the Jonas there, and uh, uh, took the head that I had. That Fred had given me. I'd on loan to the Adam, uh, Al Carmichael had a walking center where the automated lanes had been before, and uh, I'd loaned him that buffalo head display over there, Uh, 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 got it and took it over to Jonas, and they put my horns under Fred's cape, and that one, that's the one I have hanging in the yard now. So that's the way the stories go. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of fun. It was in the 68 trip then that I succeeded, not in the line, but I did luck into having a real nice leopard opportunity and killed a a Roland Ward-style leopard. I don't know, he might be the largest archery leopard of record, but I've never entered anything safari, uh, uh, safari club or anything that way, so I don't know where they are. They're just memories to me. I have the leopard uh, mounted with a baboon, and it was on display in Bear's Museum until uh, the Bear Archery uh, had those financial difficulties and different owners. And Johnny Morris eventually bought the museum. Uh, Fred had uh, had uh, my items that were down there on loan. Notarized as being belonging to me and not to the Bear Archery Company or the Bear Museum. So eventually about four years ago I was in Springfield, Missouri and got a U-Haul trailer and got them out of storage and got them home and had them kind of renovated with uh, some of the damages to them and now have them hanging in the wall or sitting in the house here at home. Don't know what we'll do with them someday. Carol will have to figure that out. <laughs> but uh,
1: that's awesome. So, Dick,
3: that was that was the time, a real time to to see Africa. Oh, I bet today. Yeah. Today, I, I talked with some fellows, you know, at the uh, Pope and Young display, and and uh, they. They have their their booths are at some of these deals, and uh, uh, oh, I there was one from Mozambique. I said I I really wouldn't want to go back today because I'd be disappointed from the way I remember it. He said, "Yeah, you would." He said, "The bush today, there's plastic blowing all over it and stuff that way, you know. It's just like uh, everywhere we got." We got too much trash
1: being scattered all over the earth. Yeah, sad deal. Heck yeah! I read that Green Hills of Africa by Hemingway, and it just sounds sounds like it used to be pretty epic. So, Dick, oh, yeah. you've uh, you're a legend yourself, of course, and you've hunted with Fred Bear and Munger and all those guys. Like, um, you know what? What made Fred Bear Fred Bear? I mean, we got you know, there's not a lot of people who've hunted with Fred Bear left anymore. So, um, you know, what was he like hunting with Fred? What was it like having him in camp and, and maybe any of the little things he did that were, uh, different than, than the others or?
3: Well, I don't know. He's just a good guy. You know, he's jovial. He's a lot of fun. He had, he had a good sense of humor. He was serious in his hunting. Uh, I think one, one of the things that strikes me most after the hunt, Fred and I came back to, uh, Nairobi and then had a flight back up to Rome. And then I joined Fred, uh, after the 65 hunt, we joined Mrs. Bear and Julia Cole and Julia's daughter, Hannah, uh, in Spain. And we met up in Madrid and we, on, on a Sunday in Madrid, uh, we went to the bullfights, and Fred and I and Miss Bear we all were, were watched one, the first bullfight, and then sitting into a second one. And uh, for my part, I was I'd had enough of Spain and bullfights, and was ready to head back to New York. And then I I was abandoning Fred to the great to the to the women. See, but Fred made a comment about it. He said. He was disgusted with the bullfights because he didn't believe killing should be made a spectacle. And that's pretty much spells out a little about his hunting and everything else, you see. It wasn't a spectacle, although he did believe in filming the hunts, and to that extent, to promoting the bull hunting. But the for the crowds and the big crowds and stuff in the auditorium, he didn't, he didn't care for the bullfight. So draw your conclusions from that. <laughs> but from, from a hunting standpoint and a partner from, and in camp, he was, he was a mentor, you know, a real mentor. Yeah. And Knickerbocker was like that too. I had, I had, my father was started me in hunting and taught me to shoot and mostly very, very religious about safety. I mean, he was, he was always checking. Now, we go out, not only me, but other people when they get back to the car, you know, oh, you're empty your shotguns, check them again, see, well, yeah, make sure. And, and, uh, I've seen him have his, some of the people on with us, they say, well, Maybe you forgot and left one in there someplace, see, so he'd make sure they're empty before we get them in the car. Always watching which direction you were pointing your gun if you were shooting. So he was a, he was a stickler on safety, but he taught me to, shoot, to hunt well and properly. And, uh, I had my father then for a matter. He died when he was 50 years of age, uh, heart attack and, uh, 1952, and then uh, following that, I might say I had a couple more mentors. I had Fred Bear and I had K.K. Knickerbocker. They were all, like my father, born in 1902, and uh, they, they became father images to me. In fact, Dick Latimer said Fred Bear had four sons. The four sons, when we had the 1989 1998, I should say, uh, shot show back in was in Kentucky or some. It was an archery show, not the archery trade show, not the SOT show. And and uh, the the banquet night there was a tribute night ten years after Fred Bear's death. And they had the four sons of Fred Bear that was Dick Latimer, and and uh, Joe Engel, Frank Scott. And me, we each got about 20 minutes or so to recall something that on that program of, of our memories of Fred as, as his foster sons. And then Ted Nugent did a little campfire thing there that night and did the Fred Bear song. It was a really pretty memorable evening. Some of the guys who are the archer age will probably remember it and have some thoughts about it. Maybe... Maybe good, maybe not so good. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, we did our our best to uh, kind of recall some of the things that we'd had with Fred and what had happened with him. I I mentioned one time, Fred uh, was Christmas uh, maybe sixty four or five when there I got a. Well, Fred asked me what, I may mean, have, she asked me what size hat I wore. And I said, well, I was wearing seven and a quarter or something like that. Well, along come Christmas time, here's a package comes to my house. I'm home here in Nebraska. And, uh, it's a, it held you know, in the box as a Borsellino hat box. So i said, well, Fred sent me a Borsellino hat. But inside the Borsalino hat box was a beautiful hat all decorated with pheasant feathers, all handmade, uh, and uh, it it was a Stetson hat, but it it all covered with, very ornately done with pheasant feathers. So I have one of Fred's Borsalino hat boxes, but I don't have one of his Borsalino (laughs) hats.
1: Oh, that's awesome
3: i had that i took that hat to that meeting that night or i i i put it on my head that night <laughs> over at the at the memory thing before they could see what it was but and and told them about the boxing and that was that was part of it
1: heck yeah that's good stuff so, so dick all these adventures you've been on um what's what's the closest to death you've been i mean you hunted Leopards and lions and and everything in Alaska. What's the closest to death out of all your stories? I know you got a million.
3: Which one is the was the the, the closest dangerous event? Yep. Yep. Well I'd say it was probably the grizzly bear attack in British Columbia in nineteen sixty one. Uh we we had been on the Grizzly Creek, and and uh, I had I had uh, been shooting a 55 pound Kodiak bow, or Magnum Kodiak Magnum bow, and before the hunt to British Columbia, the week before I was shooting my bow and cracked the limb cracked, and uh, there was. I didn't have anything in the store that was like it, you know, heavy enough. I called Bear Archery, and Fred was hunting on. Uh, that river of no return with Nick and Glenn. And I talked to Charlie Crowe, who was sales manager at the time, and I said, I need a bow in a hurry, Charlie, and you'll have to intercept it in Seattle. How are we going to work it, see? He said, well, you'd have to send it. I could pick it up at Glen St. Charles' place at Northwest Archery. That'll work. to get it out there in time. They said, I don't have it. I said, we're so swamped for back orders, I have to steal one from somebody Back order, and the thing i can find here right now is a 50 pound magnum or super 52 inch magnum and 50 pounds the heaviest i can come up with well i guess that'll have to do so that's up in british columbia with but i had a good shot at a grizzly standing across the stream from me and i was shooting number eight micro flights and uh Dick Building was there with the camera, took the film. My arrow looked beautiful, was perfect. But the bear was broadside, but when it, it hit the bear it was just it nicked him just in the armpit. It was about six inches low or eight inches or have been in the heart. And when it it made a little a nick in the, in there was a spot of blood on one arrow where it went underneath. Then the next opportunity I had, we'd seen, it was a cloudy day, we'd seen some bears coming or catching salmon on the stream and going back, and well, in the meantime, we'd already had Fred into a bear, and he'd gotten one, and Munger had had some incidents with him, and he told about his in his book, but I think Munger tells about this in his book too, you know, on a cottonwood big tree down across the stream, and I was sitting in the uprooted hole where the stump had, or the roots had been, uh, left a, a big uh, place to drop in and then look out over the stream to the side. I was kind of watching the side where I'd seen this big old boar come out and catch a salmon and go back, but there were, there were grizzlies working different places along those streams with salmon spawning too. and I heard Charlie Kroll sitting up behind me with Bill Love, Bill had a rifle was backing me and here's a grizzly bear on the log coming across right at me. and it's out there about 20 feet in front of me now, less than that maybe 15, 20 feet in front of me and there's a snag sticking up in this log right there and the bear's right up to the snag. obviously a grizzly from the looks of the head and all. So I raised up with my bull and Charlie snapping pictures. The bear turned sideways on the log a little bit, the shoulders exposed so the snag's not in the way or the stick the snag sticking up it was just a stick up. I fired my arrow but as I was doing all this process the bear was in the process of turning back. <laughs> so the arrow hit the bear as it was turning away. Hit the point of the sh- back of the point of the shoulder and hit the shoulder bone, ricocheted out, left a, about a six or seven inch gash in the shoulder of the bear, which immediately started calling me lots of dirty names as it left the log and ran across and into the bush. <laughs> At that point, determined it was a sow, there were no cubs with it when I when I saw it there, <coughs> but. <coughs> Two days later, when we were on the north, south side of Stevens Lake, and Fred had been off with Jack Lee hunting for a, a moose, and Charlie with him—excuse <coughs> me—we got uh, back to where we would left our rubber raft and was going up, kind of uphill from the lake. I heard a big commotion behind me, and here's a saw and. Uh, I whirled around with my bow, and I went. Bob Murder was ahead of me carrying a fishing rod and a bow. Bill Love was ahead of him with a backpack and a two seventy across his back on a backpack. <laughs> and I got, I got the whirled around, getting my bow around to make a shot, in my my uh, tip of my bow between the top groove in the, in the string got caught in the devil's club and I jerked it loose and in the process and it realized I pulled the bowstring half out of the top notch and when I started pulling arrow back at the barrel as it turned back it was too big bouncing along with it and they were growling and snarling the same as mama and uh, when I tried to pull my bow the, the string slipped down over the limb because it was half out of the notch from the devil's club so I'm standing there with it against my foot trying to string my bow when this bear's making its final rush and Bob Munger's hollering Bill Love who's heard the commotion and Bob's hollering watch it Bill watch it get (coughs) about the time the bear's making its final charge Bill Gov got down there beside me and had his 270 off of his back and so Here's how I'll be. <laughs> and when he dropped the bear, it was uh, when we turned it over. It was the same saw that I'd ricocheted there off of off of the tree. Wow! And she got the scent and decided to have revenge. So that was the first bear Bill i ever shot. By and and Bob and I had it made into a rug, and uh, the spell given to Bill Love for, for his minnows of that deal. That was probably the most uh, memorable close uh, call I had with uh, getting mauled or trespassed on a little bit by any of the game that I hunted.
2: Awesome. So Hunter Dick
3: had the story, I think, in his book.
2: That's a, that's an awesome story. So Dick, uh, you'd mentioned Glenn We've St. Charles. We
3: got the pictures, we got the pictures of the shot that Charlie Cole took, uh, when I was firing that arrow that started it all too.
2: Very cool. So Dick, you'd mentioned Glenn St. Charles. Um, I, I know a lot of guys look up to Fred Bear, but Glenn's a guy that I, you know, I, I really look up to, uh, reading bows on the little Delta and, um, him being from the Pacific Northwest and whatnot. If you could maybe tell us uh, a little bit about your uh, uh, run-ins and, and time spent with Glenn, that'd be great.
3: Oh, Glenn was lots of fun. He, we called him George. He'd get to calling everybody George, you know, so he was George. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we had, you know, I was, I was a part of a bear team and a sales group that was more fun, and Fred had so much fun all his time with. Whenever the salesmen get together, well, he always had some fun and games and something going on for us. And uh, once it was a canoe trip. It was a spring sales meeting. We had all, we had everything all lined up for the salesmen to have a canoe trip down the Osabo River. See, and most of the people talk fish to Osobo at night because there were canoes on them in the day, and. He, Anyway, when we go down the river, Fred had Bob Smock and uh, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, Smock was one of the guys. Maybe Charlie Cole and Bob Smock were, were hiding out down along the river. It was one of the bands. And uh, they, would, they would come out underwater and tip our canoes over as we came by. And we weren't all together. We were strung out, see. I was riding in the canoe with Ed Marker he was the sales rep for New York and all. And uh, Ed had some false teeth and wore glasses. And we got tipped over there. Uh, Ed, Ed had heard about this happening from another previous time. You know, he maybe not the first time he'd been down a canoe trip with one of these things happening. Anyway, when uh, our canoe went over, he stayed under the canoe and hung on to the bottom and kind of had his head up in the airspace there and went drifting along. And they were all looking, wondering if he got drowned in that hole or someplace. And we got righted up, but when we he got righted up, <clears throat> he lost his glasses and his teeth. <laughs> so <laughs> the clear water there. Well, we were diving. We found his teeth and his glasses and everything was fine. He <laughs> eventually died of a heart attack in a tunnel over in New York on his, one of his calls over there or someplace. I don't know if he's still working with Bear, I think of the time it happened, but but he had a, he had a fatal heart attack and what's the name of the tunnel between New Jersey and New York or the river or something over there. But uh, Fred had uh, always had some kind of good, fun times. Another time, you know, he has a, Walker's book has some of these pictures and things in it, but we had sales meeting over in the, uh, Brailing Bull Hunters uh, building where they had uh, uh, the their indoor targets in the wintertime. And uh, so Fred set it up, had all the salesmen over there. Munger came up from Charlotte and was there for uh, that day. And, and Fred had a bunch of willow sticks cut and pieces of string and ropes, and he had a bunch of, oh, uh, all kinds of arrows fixed up laying in the floor in a heap. There was one bow that was a left hand Kodiak that was about a hundred and twenty pound draw weight or something. And uh, it had a short string on it. And and there was arrows that were bent and had the fletchings on the wrong end kind of things. But so we got over there, Fred says we got a bow building contest for sales First guy to build a bow, grab one of those arrows and build a bow out of that pile on the floor and hit a 48-inch target over there on the wall, which is about 20 feet away, wins a bottle of scotch. Then blew the whistle, and we all scrambled down there. getting Glenn right away, right away made a drive for that Kodiak bow that was uh, left-hand sitting there, see, but it had a short string, and it didn't, that didn't last very long. Then we were grabbing willows and making bows and whatever. Ed, uh, 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 um, Ed Marker, I don't remember, had... See, see Clayt Shank was in the group at that time, too. Clayt was the old NAA director, and he was uh, he was representative for Pennsylvania. But uh, I, I can't now think of uh, who it was that won the bottle of scotch. But unfortunately, mo- I've lost track. Most of those guys are dead.
0: Yeah. Um,
3: I, I don't know. I don't know. Eventually, whether Bob Winquist is still living or not. But Winquist was a Michigan uh, bowhunter. But then the pictures that. I have the pictures of that Bo Scramble making those there. In the background, there's Fred sitting back there with a big sprint on his face, and Munger sitting there on a bench beside him, and I think Bill Stort was in the picture, too. That was just kind of way it was. Another time, we were having a sales meeting, and Kelly was talking about—I was. I think I I was introducing uh, some of the stuff I'd been working on for him. and. Uh, uh... And promotional deals and all of a sudden the guy in the back we're down in the basement of the shop uh, gun hotel and uh... uh this guy opens up the deal and he starts rattling you know and interrupting the salesman hey it's time to get this bar underway he's going to be the bartender down there having a little happy hour for us You get this underway he's very rude about it see Kelly got a little upset and then got over there. Well, he's fixing some drinks for us, and some, somebody said fix them, and they wanted a scotch and water, and he poured it with scotch and some kind of sweet drink in it, you know, and they and said, well, it wasn't, wasn't right, and Valentine was getting a little upset with him, and he took a sip. Well, it tastes all right to him. Another one said it wasn't, he took his finger and stirred it, you know, I think Valentine was about to beat him up. Glenn was taking it good because he'd seen it before. He was enjoying it, kind of along with it too. But <laughs> I thought for a minute Al Dawson was probably going to try to whip the guy. But it was something Fred had all set up. See, and Fred was. In the meantime, I got wise wise so I could see back in the corner. Fred was hiding, laying down behind the couch over there in the corner. <laughs> and then when Munger showed up, I knew it was a. It was a real deal. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> so, so those kind of things always stick in your head. You know what a good group we had. Um, we had when Daisy, when the Victor Comptometer thing took off. Then we came to sales meeting, and Fred had CO2 pistols, Daisy air rifle pistols for every one of us. These we had pistol battles out there. Uh, I don't think uh, anybody. I'm not so sure, but it seemed to me like one one window of the motel where the guys were staying got shot. We weren't in the same, we were in two different motels, and I wasn't fortunately in the same motel with that group. I remember at the, at one of the shot show or something in Chicago, I had some kind of rayon or silk pajamas, and I was bunking maybe with Dawson I remember. Anyhow, I went to bed early, and guys all still out partying a little bit. And I, I, I woke up out and the. Uh, I was sleeping pretty sound, and I woke up out in the hall, uh, locked out of my room, <laughs> 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 laying by the door of my room, <laughs> in my in my uh, rayon silk pajamas. <laughs> And when they tried to pick me up to take me out there, I kept slipping out of their hands. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: sounds like you guys had some good times.
3: Yeah, it was just the way it was, you know. That group, but it was fun. Lots of lots of good times. Remembering things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our best of times in Africa was the best of times, and but Fred was right bow hunting didn't last long there it was over in the 70s and then it's still going on better than ever in, the, in north america
2: so dick can you recall uh the first time you heard about the compound and
3: uh how oh, you yeah. felt i was a, i was a sailor, i had 11 and a half states i was covering for bear and uh, incidentally that was the year we introduced the super mag bow i had the first ones out in Africa, and Munger and I had shot them there, and Bill Wright had shot one of them in '65. And they had the pictures of some of our animals in an ad for the back of uh, Archery Magazine, and uh, and a Tam Magazine had them in, on the inside or back covers or something. Then it was a super mag ad. It it showed the the animals there with the bow partly shown on them, you know and then it showed the, the case with the tip of the bowl hanging out of the case said to be introduced at your to be opened at your bear dealers in january so the bear Ma- super mag was introduced in in nineteen sixty six not sixty seven like latimer's books say because latimer didn't check with me on that see <laughs> he used the bear catalog as his indication but the but the mag came out after the '66 catalog was already out. See, in the middle of the year, so it was actually introduced in '67, but didn't make a bear catalog till '67. Anyhow, <laughs> that was that was uh, uh, where the where the territory I was covering, and I heard about the the compound bowls and saw so, I. I didn't. Ha- I had a, a a dealer in Topeka that was a Western Auto or something store dealer. But the dealer I should have had was Gary Hunsinker, who had his uh, basement archery shop and and doing all the business. And uh, I was trying to protect the other dealer, and Gary would have been doing a good job, but I he was getting some stuff. But anyhow, I went down to call on him anyway and revisited. And he had a compound, an Allen compound bow there, and he was showing me a bow and was, what a contraption it was. And he said, "Man, this is the this is the future." Jerry was convinced this is the future. I couldn't quite believe it, you know. But we went back to sales meeting that year, and of course there was a lot of conversation about it. And when we were looking at the new bows, that we were going to be in the catalog and selecting which ones. This was sales meeting and. She, in July or something, or August, and uh, getting lined up, which was which would be our line for the next year. And Owen Jeffries was the bowyer, and uh, we were asking Owen, well, now what about a compound bow? What are we going to are going to have a compound bow? Yeah, Owen says I have one. So he went in, and I mean, he he brought out this this contraption he had made, a compound bow out of pipe. Pipe and pipe fittings. He using regular pipe fittings and pipe and angles and, and tees and what have you, and hung some pulleys and cables on them and it would shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing would bend but it would shoot. <laughs> that was the that was what he bear archery thought of compound bows at that time when it first came out (laughs) or what Owen and Fred thought about it I guess it was a long time before then before before bear archery actually came out with a compound when they finally did you know we had uh, the polar uh, I think was the first compound bow bear that I tried to shoot was the polar and and, uh, it, it went from there see but that was that was that was the my my first introduction to the compound bowl was Gary Huntsinker in Topeka, Kansas had one showed it to me.
2: So what was it like when when they started taking over the scene, and how did how did you feel about it?
3: Well, at that point, you know, I was no longer uh, uh, in nineteen seventy. Six, I guess it was, and I kept bringing up the subject about where to Kelly and Fred What are the standards? What are the different standards? You know, in lumber business and everything, there was woods. Everything had standards, but there were no standards for archery stuff. Really, cutting, cutting stone, and how you would determine. So Kelly took it at the time. Amada was archery manufacturers and dealers. And he took it down to Chicago, the Amada meeting, and that, that there should be some, something set up for a standards committee and, uh, and nail it down. Things like what what size threads you use for, for for replacement arrows and sights and all that stuff. See, it was part of it. And bowstrings was my main concern too, as uh, we had problems with with different. Uh, people, people always were having trouble with bowstrings, it seemed like. So they decided they'd have a, um, at the matter meeting, there was going to be a standards committee, and it was going to be Hoyt and Saunders and Bear. Well, when it was Bear, then it got delegated to me because I'd been raising the issue and working on it. So I went to work with Chuck Saunders and Earl Hoyt and met with them, and we set up the original standards. And then it continued on into the years later when I became president of AMO in the 80s and uh, got uh, organized to get Archery into the American Standard Testing ASTM standards. Bobby, well, well, uh, Easton and some of them already had involvement with this, with ball bats and skis uh, poles and things that Jim was making, and uh, uh, Gordon Plastics also, and, and Bobby Blair keyed, keyed me on to it with Gordon Plastics about ASTM. So I brought it up at the ammo meeting in Mancas, Colorado, and we got bored and and got Norm Mullaney lined up then to be our representative with ASTM, American Standard Testing Materials, under FO8, uh, under the sports sign FO8 in archery. And one of the first things it was attacked to was of course was bullstrings, and then later all, of course, we have tree stands, all these things today. But the thing that was important back then was we're also concerned about liability and lawsuits over liability lawsuits about equipment, you know. And we we learned that there had never been a successful lawsuit against any product that had an ASTM standard attached to it, see? So it was really important, but we... He set up the ASTM Committee, and I appointed Nord Mullaney to run it, and he did a beautiful, fantastic job. I later I later nominated him, along with help from Wisconsin Bull Hunters, to be in the National Archery Hall because of all this work he did in engineering, and that's where his, his memory is today. So, so what else is there to tell you about? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's, uh...
3: We had had great meetings out at Mancos, Colorado, all the archery industry out there. Glenn and Margaret were always there, a part of it, you know, and I I think Glenn had, we had so much fun, he'd come out to Bassett. Glenn was one of, and he never killed a whitetail, you know. He hunted whitetail, but never did get one. And, uh, we tried uh, his first trip to Bassett. He, I know maybe he told some of this in the Little Delta. I think he did. He was he was flying out with me, and he wondered if I had spare rubber bands for my airplane. And uh, we were hunting over on the north side of the Niagara River, and I had an international scout up there, and there was a big basin on the Dyer place on Aerosmith's land, where I. I had some whitetails spotted that were working that area and some pretty good bucks through that area. In fact, there were some dandies. But we'd, we'd driven this up there and there was there's a, there's a little patch of plum thicket or something there to the side and saw some deer working through it. And Glenn got out and started stalking. I was still sitting, just getting out of my scout. And I saw him pull his bow back and haul off and shoot, and I got a glimpse of it. I hollered mule deer. He turned around and he said, oh, too late. (laughs) At that point, he had to put the record mule deer buck, and he thought it was a whitetail because all he saw was the head and the antlers, and it was a a fork around like a fork muley, but it had like a, a main beam with an antler couple of antlers coming off the main beam but it was just the forks of a young mule deer buck see so so that one didn't work another time I drove a white tail right down through a long grove of trees i had him situated by some big hay bales that were pulled in there i guess they were pulled in there because they had poison ivy in them or some I think that was Leafy Spurge that was probably in them, they didn't want it. Anyhow, there was an old haystacker there and pulled into that grove, and I walked through it and drove a nice little buck ahead of it, and Glenn was at the end, and he, he missed the buck but shot the haystacker. <laughs> he got back to Seattle, he had a terrible case of poison ivy, I mean really terrible. <laughs> So that's the way hunting goes. Sometimes <laughs> tell stories on other people and their misfortunes. <laughs> 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 but but Glenn, Glenn uh, and Margaret uh, were so much fun to have out the cabin and Plum Creek and Carol and I just came from there yesterday and uh, uh, turkey spring turkey hunting. We had a friend from. Michigan, Wisconsin. He has a place up in Michigan. He 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 got involved. I got him involved in Compton the last time I was there, and sponsored him for a membership. And now he's a good Compton member. But he he came for a turkey hunt, uh, and uh, Carol called uh, a couple of big toms in for him last week, And, and. a blind here he was using a 52 inch uh, magnum bow, but uh, he uh, that and the toms were in full display I mean they were drumming right out in front of him he pulled a Ben Lee and he shot his arrow through the feathers instead of into the bird through the top of the feathers and uh, he got feathers on the arrow but no bird but that was unfortunately his only opportunity but he went home a much left happier, uh, much uh, more educated turkey hunter. It's not all easy to do, but I think he's going to be a good turkey hunter in the long run. Carol's turned out to be pretty good. She got a she got a a, a Jake with her bow a couple weeks ago, so we had one for uh, good eating, and now she's got her second permit and still hunting.
0: Very awesome.
3: cool. We left a couple big toms on by the road uh, yesterday as we were driving out from Plum Creek and coming home. Been a been a, a rough year because the uh, hens are late getting on the nest this year. Been cold weather and everything.
2: So, Dick, uh, maybe just uh, for in closing, just kind of tell us uh, what you think of. You know, the future of archery and, uh, you know, what it. where do you think we're, we're headed and where we've come well, from?
3: Well, I'm going to tell you where I think. I think, that, you know, archery in this country has uh, is, is got a good start and a good foothold. I think it's it's good and it's going. I think we're seeing a lot of trend back toward traditional which are like very much, you know, and I think not only just traditional recurve, but traditional going back to longbows, and, uh, th- this, uh, 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 this is, uh, interesting trend, uh, uh, I was involved very, very much very long years ago in the first formation of Pope and Young, and all that goes back with Glenn, when, when, uh, Secretary was Rosie Malinowski, uh, Margaret's sister, and uh, Mal, her husband, was one of the early directors. And the Cooleys were there, Dick Cooley, and 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 this uh, these days when when we were struggling to make uh, our name uh, well to to legitimize it, I. I I say that we had the same struggle in trying to get bow hunting for turkeys that we had for bow hunting and that they early did in early days in uh, Wisconsin and and Washington and all getting bow hunting seasons for deer. Nebraska sort of just fell in place because it was all established and going. And by the time I got into it in 1956, well, you know, it was the old hat. But there was still a lot of objection, where just a lot of things to overcome. And like Clark Conley's article, Butchers with Bows and Arrows, that went in True Magazine, Glenn never did forgive him for that article. And I, I talked to Clark about it at Fred's 80th birthday party, and we were there. And he said, well, you know, Dick, I was those days and times when was just had to have controversy in order to sell magazines. So we had controversy, and we made stories about it. And uh, I didn't think that was really right, but I could understand it. But, but I think today, you know, we we had to go through this with turkey hunting with the bow. The National Wild Turkey Federation, uh, a lot of those fellows in their eastern, eastern birds and Florida birds and all, you know, way. Well, you know, cripple a lot of turkeys and not get them. You're not going to kill them. And we, one of the things that helped to overcome that was the way Fred Bear uh, grabbed onto it and the Bear Archery Company grabbed onto it. And, and one issue of the catalog was dedicated to hunting the wild turkey with the bow. You know, I've got that catalog of artwork and everything that went into it. Um, Got a picture of Fred sitting in my cabin when 1984, I think it was. Uh, maybe it was spring of '82 after he and Dick were here, after his 80th birthday party, spring of '82. And he was sitting at the cabin there with Mouton, my dog, in front of him, or Carol's dog,
0: and he's holding
3: a uh, Ben Lee turkey call in his hand. Rob Keck says that's uh, Rob Keck is a former director of National Wild Turkey Federation said that's the first time and only picture you ever saw a Fred bear with a turkey call in his hand and uh, uh, that's how Fred Fred helped it though you know he was there always those were the things that had to be overcome and I think they're overcome and we're on a good track because turkey hunting with the bow all all States now have uh, turkey hunting, and uh, it's been a great success. One of the most successful things that game biologists have ever done. I don't know. I'm I'm concerned about uh, some of the of the camp. I mean, I mean confined confined uh, wildlife like like elk and whitetail that that. Chronic wasting disease things concern me, but they seem to have pretty good handle on it with biologists to keep in track and locating where it is. There's no way they really could stop it if it got an outbreak. But uh, we had a big outbreak uh, a couple, all well, three years ago on on blue tongue and and uh, big die off of our white tail because they just. You know, nature has a way. Once it gets uh, too many animals, it's going to take charge and give them a disease and wipe them down to to keeping uh, what what can produce. Although these animals, these whitetail in this area, when when that is spread by a gnat or an insect and, and it grows around a water hole, here we have so much center pivot irrigation and 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 uh, flood irrigation, and uh, there's so many mosquitoes and things in that that, and it and deer live out there in those cornfields around those things in the summertime year-round and exposed to it. And then when we when we harvested the corn, there's were the die-offs where they found countless animals lying dead around these water holes out in the middle of cornfield or in a water hole near a pasture and uh, the other thing that concerns me today about where it is is that we have already found out that this bio uh, thing in in, in uh, planting of agriculture genomes that, that a roundup ready In, insect, a pesticide, insecticide and herbicide free uh, chemicals and everything today is showing traces of this roundup and now the point they're starting to start looking at limiting the use of it but Monsanto Chemical Company and, and, and uh, oh I can name a number DuPont they're all there Monsanto's is the big one, though, and, and genetic thing you eat's going to have that modification in it. It's in the corn. It's in the corn that's fed. It's in the soybeans, the alfalfa, and the deer go out there and the elk go out there, and if they're feeding on those fields like they are on Nebraska, it's going to be in their system. It's in the beef cattle and whatever they feed in this Europe, Europe doesn't allow. It. They've they've banned it. See, no genetically modified corn or anything like that in Europe, and their bees are pretty much straight. But uh, it's in the honey in this country, and I think a lot of they think a lot of the problems, the loss of bees, is in our 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 bees are so important because we gotta have those pollinators. Yeah, in that our food supply. And, and these things concern me about the future as, as it will affect our hunting as well. But as far as bow hunting is concerned, I see it's going to be there for a long time and it's good and it's well and, and it's being handled well and the game biologists are doing it well. I think we're better shaped than we've ever been and we don't have to worry about the guns of autumn and all the The anti things that we had grew up with back in the 60s and 70s when we were first getting it off and going. Pope and Young Club did a lot toward helping to overcome that and uh, getting uh, word out to different state organizations about fair chase, you know. That's what it's all about.
2: Awesome. Well, we'd, we'd really like to thank you for all the work that you've put in over the years for, uh, bow hunting. Um, you know, we, we no, really appreciate don't thank it.
3: Me. I'm just so blessed because I was able to be here and be with it. You know, I don't really deserve anything, uh, because I'm, <laughs> I'm the guy that ought to be thanking everybody else. And I, I, I think, I think too, you know, that one of the, we are, here we are, we're in this country it's successful here because we have a great archery organization of manufacturers and a trade show. Because we have freedom, we have capitalism. It's not socialism or 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 fascism or communism it's capitalism. And, and uh, this is what's made it great and why we have a great industry. And just think about it in that terms. There wouldn't have been a bear or or, or Easton or a, a Hoyt or any of this without uh, they had the, the freedom to work and develop and take the risk and do the job and and if they were successful they had a profit and if they weren't they suffered the loss and tried again.
0: Yeah.
3: That's the way I see it. I appreciate the opportunity to Throw a few words out at you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we appreciate it too, Dick. Thank you so much for coming on.
3: uh, I'd I'd like to leave you with a favorite Edgar Guest poem. Okay. Called, you know, Edgar Guest was there in nineteen thirty-seven and eight during the after I grew up during the Depression times and the droughts and the dust bowls and all and there was a decline in the duck populations, and the Canada goose was an endangered bird, and our sandhills and, and the prairie potlands of uh, north and south Dakota and Canada dried up, and Ducks Unlimited got started. But Edgar Guest was a newspaper man in Detroit, and he was one of my favorite poets, and I, I love his work, but he wrote one called For Fish and Birds. I'll try to recite it for you. He said, For Fish and Birds I make this plea, May they be here long after me. May those who follow hear the call of old Bob White in spring and fall, and may they know the joy that's mine when there's a fish upon the line. I found the world a wondrous place. The cold wind blowing in my face has brought the mallards in from sea. God grant the day will never be when youth upon November's shore should see the mallards come no more. I found the world a garden spot. God grant the desolating shot and barbed hooks should not destroy some future generations joy. Fancy a world that sees no more the mallards coming to the shore. Fancier youth in all his dreams that finds no fish within the stream. See today too is garbage, plastic, stuff being dumped in the ocean in the seas. I saw so much of it down in the Bahamas 25 years ago when I go down there cruising with Knickerbocker back in the 70s. Well, that's more than 25 years. But you'd snorkel down there and you'd see the garbage thrown out into those beautiful waters and on. It goes on and on. And just like the man from Africa said, you wouldn't like it today because of all the plastic in the garbage. That's what we got to correct. We can lead the way and just do it by example.
0: I like God it. grant we I like do
3: not strip it bare. So I'll let you say goodbye.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, awesome. Dick. Thank, thank you, Dick. We appreciate you. Okay. God all bless. Right, yeah. Okay, we'd like to thank all the listeners. Don't forget to get signed up on Patreon and support us. Well, support the podcast. Uh, we do appreciate it. Check us out on social media. We'd also like to thank the national traditional, traditional, traditional bow hunting organization. Compton. Moses Keep the wind in your rain. face. I'm Pick a I'm spot. Shoot a big buck this November.
0: Right.